Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Runners Only with Dom Harvey. On this episode, Dr. Paul Wood. You know, all I can do with my life, Dom, I can't go back and rewrite that stuff, but I can demonstrate who I am through my behaviour today. Dr. Paul Wood is a motivational speaker and an author. He's 45 years old. He's also a husband and a father of two boys. The life he lives now is a far cry from his late teens and the entirety of his 20s because when Paul was 18, he was convicted of murder and sentenced to 11 years in prison. Some of you will make your mind up about Paul without even listening to this episode. He knows this and he understands your why. For those of you who do listen with an open mind, there are so many lessons we can all get from Paul's very long road to redemption. Dr. Paul Wood has done some living, there's no doubt about it. He's done some stuff, he's seen some stuff, and he's learned some stuff. And it's a pleasure to have him on the podcast for him to share these learnings with all of us. All right, let's get into it. Runners Only with Dom Harvey and Dr. Paul Wood. Hey, Runners Only, yeah, yeah, let's get it started. Hey, hey, this is Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Uh, Fast-paced, slow and steady, anywhere you coming, uh, just want to connect for everyone who loves running. This is Runners Only, yeah, yeah let's get it started. Hey, hey, this is Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Uh, Fast-paced, slow and steady, anywhere you coming, uh, just want to connect for everyone who loves running. Hey, Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Runners Only with Dom Harvey and Dr. Paul Wood. G'day, mate. How are you? Yeah, good, good. I am um, <laughs> the most educated person. I was thinking about you before. You're probably the baddest man I've had on the show <laughs> and also the most educated, which oh, is um, quite a quite a juxtaposition between yeah, isn't it? those two things. I, yeah. I also appreciate you having me on a show called Runners Only because <laughs> my wife would uh, definitely roll her eyes at that. <laughs> Uh, I've never been known for grace or beauty or speed when it comes to running, Dom. I do like it, but there you go. Yeah, well, yeah, that's the uh, first thing we need to tick off. Um, I think everyone in New Zealand has some sort of association with running, even if it's that yeah. they hate it and it um, traumatises them from having to do the compulsory school cross country. But what, what about you? Were you, oh. you do any running now? What do you do? You're oh, no, a mountain I biker, know, right? No, no I, my wife's an elite mountain biker, so I do a little bit. Uh, but to be honest with you, I, running would be my primary form of cardiovascular activity these days, particularly trail running, because I'm Wellington-based, yeah. and we're so spoiled for just awesome trails in nature, so, you know, try to get out and do that, uh, just recovering from a severely sprained uh, ankle from trail running, because as I mentioned, I'm not known for grace or beauty, <laughs> but I, I like it, you know, I don't enjoy it at the time, but I like doing hard things, Dom, Yeah, but you get yeah. a sense of satisfaction, and yeah, I think running is, uh, you know, there's lots of good lessons there in terms of life in general, right? Oh, completely. I say to people all the time, it's, um, there's so many metaphors like, uh, you know, just put one foot in front of the other. Things get tough, but if you just keep going one foot in front of each other, you will make it through and you will make it to the finish line or you'll make it to the next point where things aren't so tough or you don't feel as bad. Yeah, exactly. It's cool. I heard this really cool um, rule of thirds the other day from an Olympic coach. And the idea is, you know, if you're into your sport, let's say running, for example, a third of the time, you'll feel good when you do it. 
A third of the time you'll feel pretty average, and a third of the time you'll be miserable. <laughs> and that's how it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be good all the time. And that's life, yeah, Tom. Yeah. Oh, completely. Could not agree more. Could have I feel like, yeah, happiness is a state that everyone thinks they should be in the entire time, right? Yeah, which is yeah. just a terrible message because it just sets you up for unmet expectations and it sets you up for more misery and suffering than required. Yeah. I mean, look, running, let's use that metaphor. You know, a, a real key, I think, success factor from running for me is the ability to more effectively make your way through misery and suffering, eh? <laughs> you know, carry on even though it's hard, persevere. And that's what life's about. It's about being able to still pursue and do what matters despite the misery and suffering. Because there'll be lots of that. Yeah. Whatever that looks like for you. That probably leads us nicely into, into what's next. Um, you are more than well qualified to, um, to talk about misery and suffering because you've had um, one hell of a life. And, and I'm guessing, well, to put it bluntly, like you're, you're a murderer. You're a convicted murderer. I, I told my girlfriend, she said, what are you doing today? I said, I'm doing a podcast with this guy, uh, this guy's murderer. I've just invited him over to my house by himself. It's just going to be us there. Hopefully it goes well. <laughs> well, no, that's what she asked. She said, who else is going to be there? Fair enough, Brian. Now, okay, no, but you're, you're a guy that has completely and utterly turned your life around. You made a terrible mistake. You paid your debt to society. And now, as I mentioned before, the most educated person I think we've had on the podcast. But do you still feel this? You know, people judging you in person? Are there people that yeah, just won't uh, let you... Of, of course, and mate, that's fair enough. If you're someone whose life has been negatively impacted by violent crime, it is fair enough that you continue to judge me. It's fair enough that you don't get past my background. You know, that's just the nature of these things. Like, I've been uh, attacked many times in my life, in prison, prior to prison, all that sort of stuff. I know what it is to be on the receiving end of violence, and it's fair enough, you know, that if you've experienced anything like that or your family's been negatively impacted by it, that you judge me and that you don't get past that. You know, all I can do with my life, Dom, I can't go back and rewrite that stuff, but I can demonstrate who I am through my behaviour today and I can make sure that I'm in a position to judge myself based on what's important to me, what my values are, and, and that has to be the measure rather than whether everyone likes me. That's tough, though, because I want to be liked. I'm a socially needy <laughs> we all, person. We, we all do. We all do. I'm an approval junkie. <laughs> yeah, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I don't know why I chose a career like radio where you're judged by you know ratings and stuff, whether yeah. you're liked or not. It's terrible. When you're like that, how do you, how do you get by in prison? Because not everyone's going to like you. Yeah, well, it's an interesting one, though, eh? Like, pr- prison is what would technically be called an honour culture. And an academia and a culture is basically defined as a culture where your sense of self-value is heavily determined by other people's perceptions of you and whether or not other people respect you. And so it's a, it's a culture where if anyone demonstrates disrespect towards you, any perceived slight, if you are a moral upstanding member of the community, and remember, m- morality is a subjective term in this context, right? <laughs> the right thing to do in prison, the moral thing to do is to engage in aggressive behaviour towards anyone who slights you in any way, any perceived disrespect. And if you don't immediately dominate physically, if you can't beat the other person, then the correct behaviour, according to the prison code, is to escalate the level of violence, to go and get a weapon until you do dominate. So actually, you know, the way prison works is if you are considered to be an upstanding member of the community, if people 
openly don't like you, then that will resolve itself one way or another, either in your favour or against it. But it's a society where there is hypervigilance around perceptions of other people's opinion of you. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the things I've had to sort of come to grips with in my life because I spent so much of my formative life in there, 18 to 29. Yeah. And before that, I'd lived a criminal lifestyle where the same rules applied, basically, but not as extreme. You know, for me now, it's still one of those things where I'm more sensitive to perceptions of disrespect than I think a normal person mm. would be. However, I've got good tools and good ways of coping with that and not being derailed by it. Mm. But I feel the sting. The difference is I don't react aggressively. Right, so if someone at the Jetstar counter, you know, makes a snide comment, you're not going to stab them in the neck with a toothbrush? No. <laughs> no, I'm not. Absolutely not. But, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive to that stuff, and that's yeah. part of my ongoing life journey. It's, it's funny, Dom, because I got out of prison. Wait, and, wait, what, yeah, year, what year did you get out? Okay, so it was 2006. Okay. So I served years. 10 years, 10 months, and two days, to be exact. I went and I was arrested on New Year's Eve 1995, um, turning to 96. Uh, I was then released 2006, the end of that. And I tell you what, when I went into prison, no one had cell phones. That just wasn't something that you saw, yeah, other right, than maybe right. a builder with a big brick or something. <laughs> when I came out of prison, there was this thing called the internet, and everyone had cell phones. Like, I was there through quite a big change in terms of how society operated. And I got out, and I was educated. I was two years into my doctorate. I'd really made positive changes in my life. And I thought I got out relatively unscathed. I thought I'd got out relatively undamaged. But then over time, you start to realise more and more of the things that you still carry with you Mm. that are just a natural consequence of being such a habitual species. You know, we adapt to whatever circumstances we're in, and we develop habits that are useful to us. What do you mean? What sort of things you carry with you? Like um, oh, just the hypervigilance? Or, 100%. Or, well, let me give you an example. Okay. Right? So okay. hypervigilance is often seen as a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, and yeah. it is. Yeah. But hypervigilance is really functional for you when you're in a dangerous environment. Mm. So hypervigilance is just, basically means being way more sensitive to perceived threats or potential threats than is normal. And, hey, mate, if you're in a combat zone or you're in a situation of domestic violence or you're in prison, that's incredibly helpful for you to be hypervigilant because you are genuinely in a dangerous environment. The trouble becomes, of course, is when your brain gets into these habits and then you're no longer in that situation, but you continue to have that sort of level of hypervigilance. Mm. And that's problematic for you. Okay, so let's go way back. So you're in your your teenage years. You're a, a, a bit of a shithead. I don't know, just a normal a normal teenager that's no, just dabbling in drugs. No, 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 definitely not. Look, you know, I mean, I was actively involved in crime from probably about the age of 12. Uh, you know, I hung out with people, uh, a number of whom came from uh, intergenerational gang families, you know, where criminality was normal. One of the things I always say to parents who are worried about their teens is this, the most important indicator of how your teens will behave is what gets them respect in their peer group, what's mm. seen and valued. Yeah. Technical term yeah. for that is the prestige economy. Prestige is like mana. It's something other people give you where they place value on you based on your skills, your knowledge, or your behavior. Yes. And the prestige economy, what's respected by your peers, is, is what will drive your behavior as a teenager. 
And for me, you know, the prestige economy of my peers was stuff that's quite a bit more extreme than normal teenage sort of delinquency. You know, I, I hung out with people who committed burglaries, who stole cars, where street fighting and your capacity for violence was the ultimate in terms of what got you respected. And that was certainly my lens on it. So that was more the environment I grew up in. Yeah, but your, your, your trajectory, though, like if you looked at it, you weren't, you weren't on track to be like a violent murderer. Yeah, no. You, you were potentially going to grow through this awkward, 100%. uncomfortable teenage phase and find yourself. Yeah, yeah, and, and this is the thing, right? Like, I went off the rails, and that explicitly implies that rails were laid down in the first place. Like my parents, for example, yeah. you know, they, they weren't criminogenic is the technical term. They yeah. were... Contributing tax-paying members of society. In my teenage years, I started... <laughs> you, must have been a, you must have been a worry for them. <laughs> well, to be, to be honest with you, Dom, I, I certainly was. I think a big thing, though, is that, you know, my mum was terminally ill when mm. I was a teenager, and that was what occupied my dad's attention and yeah. her attention, as you can imagine. You know, and, and they didn't know half of what I was up to. But also it was different times where there was a lot more independence. So do you, do you think in a way with that in mind, like your dad um, you're nursing your mum or putting his attention there and rightfully mm. so, do you think you were like acting out for attention in a way or just enjoying the unlimited freedom that you had that you probably didn't deserve or mm. warrant at that age? Man, a co- combination of all yeah. of the above. I mean, for a start, I was uh, a young man attracted to chaos I loved the excitement. Like a lot of a lot of young guys are. One hundred percent, and that's why one of the things you so need, and it's not exclusively guys, but it's really common with them, and their behaviour is often more problematic because of testosterone. And testosterone makes you able to less accurately gauge risk, mm. so you're more likely to engage in high risk behaviour. And you know, you need a positive outlet, you need a positive direction for that energy. And I didn't really have one, and there were different points in my life where that could have changed. For example, the local community constable, um, Andrew Saunders, who I really didn't like at the time, but who I I now look back on with real respect, Mm -hmm. you know, he was a guy who tried to do a positive intervention for me and my mates by creating a rugby league team in our area for at-risk teens. So myself and my mates all got into this, and rugby league's a great game for getting out some physical energy <laughs> yeah, and you giving you... It's the closest thing you can get to like a legal street fight, isn't Mate, it? Mate, I'll tell you what, in prison <laughs> there's something called Crash. Crash is the prison version of rugby league, and it's generally played on concrete, and it is used as an <laughs> ultimate opportunity for people to settle scores with each other, but also to demonstrate your willingness not to back down and to engage in... Uh, let's say, contact. When I was in B block in Paremarimi, which is the toughest block, I always made sure I never missed a game of crash when one was on because I wanted people to know I wasn't scared. And I'll tell you what what they used to do up there at that point is they used to play these games of crash in the gymnasium that each block would periodically have access to and one of the guards used to record it, then it used to get played over the prison system so all of the blocks could see it. So you want to talk about pressure to step up and not back down from a reputational perspective, it was the ultimate. And I tell you what, people, I remember going up there, and I'd been used to playing Crash on the concrete and that when I was in the Wellington prison, but up here was the first time I saw people get tackled and drop weapons and just pick them up and carry on, and no one even batted an eyelid. Mm. So, you know, people would be carrying shanks and that while they're playing. Hey, what, it was what, intense, bro. What's a shank? Uh, shanks, shank and a shiv are just homemade weapons in prison. 
So shiv is generally more like a homemade knife, whereas a shank is a broader sort of like set or collection of weapons that might include things that are more like ice picks, which used to be a big one up in, in Parry Max, because the bars had this um, grilling on them that you could uh, work off over time that would give you a sharp metal rod that then people would sharpen on the concrete and turn into like an ice pick to stab people with. You're quite innovative, eh, the old Oh, bro, 100%, man, 100%. Like, when I, when I, you know, one of the things I do when I go and talk to people in prison these days is I always try to encourage them to think of the generalizable skill set they already have that they can take and use in a more positive way that will stop them ending up back in prison and will actually result in greater financial mm. remuneration and, and not having to look over their shoulders all the time. And, you know, there's a lot of creativity and innovation. There's also a lot of entrepreneurship within prison. <laughs> like, if I go back in there and I'm like, how many of you have dealt drugs before? The vast majority of people are putting up their hands. Right? You've got small business experience. You understand supply and demand. Yeah, yeah. You know, you need to take that skill set and apply it in other areas where you wouldn't be back here. But anyway, so, you know, when I was a teenager, they set up this rugby league team. And to be honest with you, it's not that I'm, I'm like a talented person, but I'm a hard worker, Dom. Mm. And when I played rugby league, you know, I would just make as many tackles as I could. And I would just tackle all day. I was put in second row in the forwards, and I'd just tackle, tackle, tackle. And to be honest with you, something like rugby league could have potentially been a vehicle for me. Yeah. Because I'm quite a physical person. I've got a good work ethic in that. And if we had just had someone who had said to me at that point, hey, this could be the thing for you, that could have mm. been a change in my life. But instead, you know, like one of the people involved in the team was one of the local drug dealers. Further reinforcement. It was like missed opportunities, mm. eh? Yeah. And I had other people in my life who, you know, wanted the best but just didn't necessarily have the skills to the do an tools. effective intervention. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So so the, the the guy that you um that you murdered, uh your drug dealer, like a bad dude. You know, there'll be a lot of people listening that go, Well, you know, one less one less baddie on the yeah. street and there's other people that go, No, a life is a life. hundred percent, bro, but I was a bad dude yeah. as well. Yeah, you know, had, I, had I been the person who had died that day, I would have never had the chance and opportunity that I've had to realise I was on the wrong path yeah. and to change my life. And I'll tell you this right now, that bad dude still had family. Mm. He still had people who loved him. You know, and the reality is, is that, you know, people are complex in the world's messy, Dom. Yeah. One of the things I've learned through my experience of prison, and particularly having heaps to do with gang members, because that's so common in prisons for people to be gang members and that, is that... You know, I truly believe that the vast majority of people are just trying to do the best they can based on what their understanding of good looks like, based on what their life experiences are. I would say 100%. Well, I mean, look, hey, there are there are some exceptions to that, I've got to say. Look, you know, oh, people that you've met and... Yeah, right, who are okay. like genuine psychopaths. Who <laughs> okay. are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but but they're, they're not normal, bro. They literally have their brains <laughs> are wired differently. Yeah. And those are the exception. Even in prison, those people stand out as mm. unusual. The vast majority of people in prison, they're not there because of what's wrong with them. They're there because of what they've experienced and what's happened to them and, and where that's led them in terms of their decision-making, in terms of their coping skills. And there really is a path out and a path back for people if they have the right insight, supports and opportunity. Yeah. But, you know, like for me, had I been the person who died that night, people would have done to me exactly what they did to... to you know, Boyd, who was my victim, and that's to go, oh, good riddance to bad rubbish. Yeah. You know, one criminal kills another, no big loss there. But as I said, I've had the chance to change my life. And um, it's it's a tough one, though, because for many years, people, including staff members within the prison who knew my story, would say to me, 
oh, well, hey, I would have done the same thing. Yeah, which, you know? which is, I suppose just reinforces your like, victim mentality. Right. Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah, exactly, not to take ownership. Mm. How, long did it, how long did it take you? Oh, three years, four years? Nah, how, many, how long did you nah, sentence? longer than really? that. Really? Oh, shit, yeah. Because, like, at the early stages of my sentence, like, I didn't go in and, and see a light, like the road to Damascus, right? I didn't go in and see the light and change. I went in and just carried on doing what I had always done in a more constrained environment. You know, I did drugs. I blamed everyone else for my situation. Ah, uh, it was his fault. It was the police's fault. It was my lawyer's fault. I didn't take ownership because it's hard to take ownership, bro. Mm. That's been a real journey for me. And look, you know, the reality is is that, you know, still it's one of those things where you have to really hold yourself to high standards and high levels of accountability because that's the only path forward. Yeah. The reality is is while it's momentarily easier to feel like you're the victim, and by the way, don't get me wrong, some people genuinely are the victim in some circumstances, but it's easy to develop a victim mentality where you don't take responsibility and you blame others. Mm. And it means, you know, it's easier psychologically for that moment, but it is the least empowering position you could possibly have because unless you take ownership of your past behaviour, then you really can't own the idea that you are empowered to positively impact on your future based on the choices you make now. No matter how the situation is against you, no matter what bad luck you've had or what other people's role might be, if you don't own that your decisions now can positively impact your future, then you live a really disempowered life. Mm. Why did it take you so long to get to that point? Part part of it would have been maturity. Part of it also would have been range of reference, man. You know, it's like you only know what you know. It's like an informed choice requires you to be aware of what your Mm. options are. If you don't know what your options are, you're not going to be making the best choice for yourself. It's kind of like not having a sense of direction, you know, when when you're in a walker, when you're on a boat. If you don't have a sense of direction, you just go wherever the currents take you, yeah, eh? Yeah. But the reality is is that a lot of people who are in prison, who stay in prison, who reoffend, all that sort of stuff, inhabit very small worlds where they have a very limited understanding of what life can be. Let me give you an example, right? When I go back into the prisons, I always say to people, if you think this is okay... If you think prison isn't too bad, maybe it's even good, that is a sure sign of how terrible your life has been. Mm. Because by comparison, you think this is good. Trust me, this isn't good. This is a terrible place to be. This is a terrible place to waste your precious short life. But a lot of people think it's good because their comparison is such dysfunction, mm. is such misery. Although reading reading your book, which is um, your first book, you're a, a double published author, How to Escape from Prison, the remarkable story of how one man defied the odds. There are there are times in there where yeah, it sounds like you're having some fun days. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, but you know, again, it's it's what they few and far between. It's what's your comparison, eh? And yeah. it's like that's one of the things about drug use as well. And you know, like I did lots of drugs in prison. And, you know, anyone who's used drugs will be able to relate to this, that drugs give you short-term immediate pleasure. Mm. They help you avoid, you know, the challenge of whatever your situation might be. And so even in prison, you know, drugs gave you relief from that stuff. The problem is, though, is that drugs never address the underlying issues. And look, hey, lots of people take drugs recreationally, and that's all good, um, you know, I don't personally, and that's that's all good, you know, that's just, just life choices, but the problem is, is that if you have uh, life stability issues, for example, you know, if you don't have a clear sense of purpose or meaning or things to look forward to in your future, 
then why not just do drugs more and more often? Mm. Because they make you feel good momentarily, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so that's how people get into trouble. Right. You know, whereas, you know, in prison, oh my gosh, it was definitely one of those things. I, I would say, um, you know, for me, I was really lucky that I always had an accomplishment mindset in my life. I was always mm. very driven to try and achieve things. Unfortunately, that energy wasn't positively focused in the earlier years, but it's something that's really um, helped me change significantly mm. in my later life because I've just found a positive outlet for that same energy yeah. that got me in so much trouble. Yeah. Had you, had you been in jail? Is it like before that first night when you were arrested for murder, had you been no. in a holding cell? Or? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'd yeah. definitely been arrested multiple times. Right. Okay, so 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 you get, you get arrested after you murder this guy, this guy Boyd, by... Yeah. by um, hitting him with a baseball bat to the yeah. point where it breaks. Yeah. You're high at that time. When do you start to become uh, aware of the magnitude? Oh, man, I was aware of the magnitude, you know, immediately after. Yeah. You know, like, he had attempted to attack me in my house, and I had gone far beyond what was required of me in terms of self-defense. You know, and there I can are, see why you're angry for like because yeah, he att- he attacked you, you attacked him back, you did go overboard, but why there wasn't even a discussion of a man anyway. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter. What's gone is gone. Yeah, I, I know you're yeah, not you're not looking nah. back in anger, but yeah, you, you got dealt a raw fucking hand for an 18 year old. Well, I, think. I mean, you know, that, no, that's the thing. I, I, anyway, you know, anyway, yeah, I, I, I don't I, want to get you started. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> and I'm not by the bottom. Yeah. I mean, it was what it was. I made all the choices along the way that led me to the situation yeah. I was in. And, and I, I, I love the attitude you've got now. It's like a, one of the Navy SEAL things as well. It's like owning your shit, owning as much of any situation as what you possibly can. You seem to like live by that ethos now. I, I really try to, but yeah. but man, we're all works in progress, eh? Mm. You know, like, again, if, if you have an ethos, if you have a set of values, if you have tenants to live your life by, it's way easier to increase the likelihood that you'll be moving in the direction of being the person you really want to be. But we're all works in progress. Mm. You know, one of the things I really learned from my experience of imprisonment and trying to change is that the goal is progress, not perfection. The goal is getting better rather than being good all the time. Mm. The problem is, is if you think that you're supposed to achieve perfection or be good all the time in terms of who you want to be as a person, then if you do fail to show up in that way, what you do is you can use that as an excuse to go, oh, what the hell, and just engage in more bad behaviour or to just beat up on yourself Mm. rather than recognising that those failures, those are the real opportunities to learn and grow in a way that enables you to get better going forward and being yeah. who you want to be. Oh, I agree. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of power in mistakes. Obviously, maybe not, not to the extreme that you took it to. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was Mark Richardson, the, you know, the New Zealand cricketer. He had, a, had a thing called the three Fs, like um, fuck up, fix it, forget about it. Yeah. And basically, yeah. like just ign- make a mis- you make a mistake, that's life. Acknowledge it and then sort of move on from it. I think if you're not making mistakes, you're not really living a, f- a full life, are you? No, well, the thing is, is, I mean, check this out, right? If you're not making mistakes then you are not engaging in growth and development as a person because you're not going beyond what you know you can succeed at. And the way forward is not only doing things you know you can succeed at. The way forward is by getting out of your comfort zone, trying stuff out, learning from your failures so that you can become more successful. That is literally how you grow and develop. Mm. And I tell you this right now, as a species... 
We are all inherently motivated by a sense of progress in the areas of our life that matter to us. The pursuit of mastery is what we talk about in psychology. And hey, look, what people are into, look, it's different things for different people, right? For some people, it might be career aspirations. For other people, it might be being at more peace with themselves, But we all fundamentally have this need to feel a sense of progress, that we're getting better at what matters to us. So if you live a safe life in terms of never failing, then you are not engaging in progress and growth. And you will have a life of less meaning and satisfaction than someone who actually fails, but fails and learns and recovers. I think the key for me is that, you know, I try my best these days for my failures to not negatively impact on other people yeah. any more than they need to. Yeah, that's a good one. You know, it's interesting. Like, I was, I was, I was telling you how I caught up with, um, you know, uh, my friend Richie Hardcore today, and we were having a bit of a chat about stuff and that. And I was saying to him, you know, like, I don't regret anything that I've been through in terms of it making me who I am today. The only thing I regret about it is the damage that was caused to other people yeah. for my learning to occur. But I've had some relatively hard times in my life, you know, um, compared to what a lot of people have. But even then, I still consider myself blessed compared to what some people go through, people I know and have come across. So it's all relative, eh? So, so the, the incident happened on New Year's Eve. And your mum died three days before that. Yeah. So you had Christmas, your mum died, then this happens. So you, you weren't able to go to the funeral? No. No. Um, no. And, and I'll tell you what, it was an interesting thing, eh? Because... Uh, grief is such uh, an interesting and individual process. Mm. You know, like there are the um, stages of grief that people talk about and, and that's yeah. interesting, the yeah. rest of it. But grief is something where we all have our own journey in that respect. Yeah. And and things can surprise you at different points, you know, and you just got to sort of like accept whatever your journey is. But I never really had the opportunity to properly grieve. I suppose you were dealing with your own new surrounds, your own new reality. 100%, but yeah. also as well, you know, like, oh, it was interesting. Eh? Like, I remember early on in my sentence, maybe a year in, having this dream of like my mum coming to see me, like visiting me and telling me I was on the wrong path and, and you know, been really impacted by that. My mum was a really nice person, definitely the nicest person in my life mm. growing up and that. Um, and, yeah, and, uh, yeah, really, uh, it was not until I was about nine and a half years into my sentence that I was able to get permission to have an escorted leave to go and visit my mum's grave. Right. And then the journey of of trying to grieve more effectively has been an ongoing one since then. And, you know, I, like, I, I still definitely grieve for I think anyone who's lost a parent understands yeah. how hard it is. I suppose, I, suppose, I wonder if um, that's part of your, like, your driving force now, like to make her proud with what you do. I'll tell you what, the, most, the thing that impacts me most, I reckon, is when I speak at conferences, and I do heaps of speaking about different, you know, things, but always using sort of my own experiences and underpinning sort of like story to communicate important ideas. But when people come up to me and say to me, oh, your mum would be proud of you. Oh, my gosh, that's the thing that I Mm. think has the biggest impact on me emotionally. I wouldn't say it's something that's at the front of my mind as a conscious driver, but I definitely live my life where I think, you know, as long as I'm doing stuff where she would be proud, then I'm probably on the right track. Yeah. And what about your dad? Is he still around? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's fantastic. He's he's, 86, um, mate. He's what? 86, still around. 
still active, still constantly doing manual labour around his property mm. and that. Yeah, he, you, I mean, you read your book, he, he was there, constant visits, never gave 100%. up on you. Well, I mean, he was the person who paid for my study out of his pension, so yeah. I could study. I mean, at that point, you couldn't get student loans or anything in prison. I literally wouldn't have been able to study if it wasn't for him. Mm. And I only really get how hard it must have been for him. Now I'm a parent myself and I understand how much you love your kids yeah. and don't want them to suffer. I mean, in the early years, he'd often come and visit me and I'd be on non-contact visits. Oh, that means there's a big perspex yep, glass. big perspex yeah. glass yeah. because you're too high security for physical contact with civilians. And, you know, like I'd get I'd black eyes, stuff like that when I was in prison and he'd come to those visits and then he'd obviously have to walk away from those knowing there was nothing he could do to change my circumstances and there was no end in sight to this, Dom. Mm. I mean, my God, it must have been hard for him. Yeah, that's one thing I wanted to ask you. So um, so, so you get arrested on the New Year's Eve and then, um, yeah. you know, you, you, you're bewildered, you're dealing with the stuff, but then um, that settles down and you're on remand. Then there's the trial and that's when you find out the next 10 years from like 19 to 29 or whatever, is, and bear in mind, so you're 19 years old, so this is like 50% of your life to date. Yeah. So you, what seems like a fucking long time. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, is you, you, you can't eat, you haven't, at that age, so I went in at 18, right? And then I, by the time I was sentenced, I was 19. Yeah. But I always knew that that was a likely sentence, even from 18. And at that age, when you're a teenager, you haven't had enough, enough life experience to con- contextualise what 10 years is. Do you so, think so? I would have thought it'd be the nah, opposite. No, nah, it I, seems I, I like remember, forever. Because when I was reading your book, I remember I remember being like eighteen or nineteen, and if I met someone that was thirty, like when you you were when you came out, I thought they were fucking old. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean, though. So, like, I'm forty five now. Yeah. If you said to me ten years, I've had enough life experience to go. Okay, I know what ten years feels like as an adult. Mm. I know how quick that can go, and that you've got all this life ahead of you. But as a teenager. 10 years is forever. Being 30 is unimaginably old. <laughs> Unimaginable. And so for me, you know, I was just like, there was literally a point after I'd been sentenced where I was just like, right, this is my new life. This is it. I gotta for- I've just got to forget about the outside world. I've just got to focus on this. And, you know, I think everyone goes through the consideration of whether or not to kill themselves when they're in those circumstances. I think that's a very normal thing to consider and lots of people in prison do yeah you know it's it's a disproportionate problem within the prison environment as you can well imagine oh, right? it's understandable it's a very hard environment what kept you going there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Especially, the, I'm thinking after you get yeah. sentenced in those early days where you think, okay, the next 10 birthdays at least, next 10 Christmases. Yeah. 4,000 yeah. days, whatever. 120 months, that's 10 years, eh? You know, I suppose 
Just never had it in you? Just never no, had that? Well, no, I think we all have it in us, to be honest, in some respect. But I think, you know, maybe I still had stuff to look forward to that kept me going. Like even what? if it wasn't positive, like getting drugs. Like getting <laughs> drugs in. But also as well, in the early years, I had aspirations to escape. Yeah. And that kept me going as well. <laughs> you know, like if you look at the photo on the back of that book, How to Escape from Prison, right? That's a mugshot that was taken when I was um, 18. And... That was the first photo they took of me in prison. These days, it's all, you know, high-tech, digital, yeah. digital photos of you. That was the first mugshot taken of me. And if you have a look at the back of it, have a look at how tall it says I am on that. 180, 180 centimetres. Okay, so I'm about 186. Right. But yeah, when that photo was taken, I was thinking of escape. So I deliberately shrunk down the wall a little bit. So when they were looking for me and giving description of me, they'd be looking for someone shorter. So I was very much geared towards escape in those early years. And, and the prospect of escape gave me hope, to be honest, yeah, Dom, okay. because it gave me something to focus on and look forward to. And there were situations, like there was one situation where I very nearly escaped, and I'm very glad that I didn't and that I chose not to follow through. Um, but to be honest with you, by the time escape came easy, I was far enough into my sentence where I'd started to have other interests, like yeah. education and other things that stopped me from doing it. And I'd reached a level of maturity as well where you know, I, I had more, more perspective and, and, and more long-term thinking. You asked why it took me so long as well to sort of change once I was in prison. Part of it was just my age. You know, like the part Still of your growing brain, up. Yeah, yeah, the part of your brain responsible for evaluating consequences, you know, long term decision making, impulse control, and all of that is your prefrontal cortex. And for males, that doesn't finish developing until your mid 20s. Mm. So I literally didn't have the neurological capacity for that kind of stuff until I was a bit older. And also, as well, you know, I was just living my life according to what my previous experience had been. And when I did start to educate myself, man, it wasn't with any great aspirations or for any noble reason. You know, I started studying psychology because I thought that would be really useful for being more effective as a criminal and also as well, <laughs> and this is just me being honest with you, right? Yeah, yeah. But also as well for avoiding the attacks of other people in prison that had been better at mind reading. So when I was in, in, in Parry and maximum security when I was 20, I thought, okay, well, when I get out of prison, when that eventually happens, you know, I'll import drugs. That'll be what I do because, you know, that's a viable career choice for me. I can't do anything that's not criminal because my imprisonment, my criminal record will count against me forever. So I'll do this. This is what I'll do. You know, I think one of the most important things that education did for me is it made me aware of the other options available to me. The original yeah. word for educate means to lead out of, to lead yeah. out of the darkness of your own ignorance. That's what it did for me. And to be honest with you, one of the most important things I do for other people in prison today is I provide a reference point for them where they can look at me and go, there's someone who's a convicted murderer. I hate even saying that, Dom. I hate it hearing you. It's yeah. just the nature. It's a heavy thing, eh? But that's the reality of, of my past. And they can point to me and go, even though people know that about him, he is an accepted member within society. Not everyone may like me, Dom, but I live a good functional mm. life 
where I am a contributing member of society, and that is important for giving other people hope that it's worth trying to change. Absolutely, and and as you know now that like the money you can make on the corporate circuit better than being a drug dealer. A hundred percent, you know. And I mean the thing yeah. is as well, and there's no there's no risk of imprisonment associated with that either. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. if you look at what people actually make in terms of the length of time they spend in prison yeah. for involvement with drugs, it just doesn't work out. When I go to prison, I always say to people. Hey, look, you know, if you've had this experience of small business, there's stuff you can do where you'll make more money than this. Mm. Legally. And you don't have to deal with it. Yeah. I mean, let me, I'll tell you what. When it's talking about speaking, right? So I do a lot of speaking. One of my favorite contrasts I've had, Dom, is I did this, this corporate speaking engagement at the Royal Yacht Club down the road from mm-hmm. here. And it was for a real estate company, a very high end. And the amount of Rolexes in that room, mate. Unbelievable. Every type you can think of, right? The next day, I'm going into the prison environment to talk to people in there about one of the programs I'm involved in and to you know encourage people to sign up and go along. And I end up going into a high-security, non-compliant block. So this is basically the prison within the prison where people end up here oh, where they okay. get kicked out of other parts of the prison. The worst of the worst. Worst of the worst, non-compliance, right? And I go in there, and the staff member who's in charge of it goes, look, we can't have people unlocked while you're in here because it's too big a risk of uh, security breaches in terms of inter-gang rivalry, but also hostage situations. We never have more than four people unlocked at a time, and we can't have them unlocked when you're around. So, look, I'm not really sure we can do this. But after a bit of negotiation and a bit of chat, what they decided is they agreed that, okay, well, what they would do is they'd have everyone locked up, but they would open their meal slots in their cells. And your meal slot's about halfway down the door. And that way, people can put their ears to the meal slot and listen to you while you stand in the middle of this block and just yell if you want to do that. They really had to like read a room and gauge right. how you're doing as a public right. speaker. Hey. And then, like, the staff member's like, hey, look, I don't know how this is going to go. I think, to be honest, people will shout you down and that it's a non-compliant block. It's, you know. And I said, okay, well, look, yeah, look, I'm fine with this. I really want to give it a go. But also as well, man, I've been in maximum security prison. And, and yeah, when you're in maximum yeah. security prison, you are always treated as a risk to be mitigated. And you've earned that, right, through your previous bad behavior. But I also know from personal experience how powerful it is to have someone treat you as a normal human being and to give you expectations to live up to. That was some of the most seminal moments for me in my prison experience is having people treat me with respect and with expectations that I was a normal person. Mm. And so what I did is I said, look, okay, we'll do this. But before I speak, is it okay if I go around all the cells and say hello to everyone? Because what I want to do, Dom, is I want to make sure that people know that I'm treating them as a human being, that I respect them, and that I accept them, and I want to connect with them on an individual yeah. level before I speak to them as a group by yelling while they're at their meal slots. Yeah, and but sure, surely immediately there's a li- little certain level of respect knowing what you've been through and that you've come out the other yeah, way. Yeah, that's yeah. true, but also not everyone's going to know who I am or yeah. anything about me there. You know, again, people inhabit these small worlds. And so this is standard operating procedure, right? You never put your hand inside a meal slot. Right. Because then you're at the mercy of the prisoner who can just grab your arm, break your arm very easily. Mm-hmm. But what I think to myself is, I'm going to give everyone expectations to live up to here. So what I do is I walk up to the first... So a lot of trust. 
Well, I'll yeah. tell you what it is, yeah. man. I, I know I'm engaging in risk, but I also know that this might be one of the most powerful experiences that someone in this situation has mm-hmm. in terms of people treating them as a human being and giving them expectations to live up to. A lot of them have never experienced that yeah. level of trust, Dom. And you can't expect people to learn to be independent, functioning members of society if you don't give them opportunities to stuff up, if you don't give them a little bit of trust. Yeah. And so I walk up to this first cell and I'm like, oh my God. Gosh, okay, here we go. And the first cell is this uh, gang member with full facial gang tattoos, eh? And I walk up to the cell, and I immediately go, hey, my bro, shove my hand in the meal slot, right, and shake hands with him. And here's the funniest thing. Within the first, like, five seconds, he goes, hey. And then straight away, he does the ultimate prison thing to do, which is to go, hey, chuck your shoes in here. Give me your shoes. <laughs> bro, why is it why, bro, is that, why is that the uh, the ultimate prison thing to do? Because shoes are the only things that you can get which are personalized. You right. wear prison uniform right. and everything else. And it is just what such were a you, What were your shoes? Were they like some Nikes, like, bro? Some Nikes. Oh, could just, he see them though and tell them? Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But even then if he could, it wouldn't have mattered, right, right, right. you know, but He's like, immediately, I oh, chuck your shoes in there. And I just cracked up laughing and said, no chance of that, bro. And then, I kid you not, within 10 seconds, he's immediately onto this. Oh, hey, you know what it's like to be in here. Hey, um, can, can you give me an address on the outside that I can send to, get a stash sent to that you can bring in? This is within, like, the next 10 seconds. And I just laughed and just said to this guy, bro, you got so much hustle. If you use the same amount of energy and hustle towards something legal, you wouldn't be sitting in here and you would be cashed up. And he thought that was hilarious. And I went around every cell and shoved my hand in and said g'day to people and no one abused that trust. And people were so appreciative of the effort that was Mm. made there, Dom. And then after that, you know, I went and spoke in the middle of the block. But the contrast between those two audiences, the Rolexes at the Royal Yacht Club versus the non-compliant prisoners in high security, you know, couldn't be more different. But, bro, we are all people, eh? Absolutely. You know, the struggle's real for I don't care what your life looks like. I don't care how big your TV is, how attractive your partner is, you know, how, how flash your car is or anything. We all experience misery and suffering, eh? Yeah. And I think that's a really useful thing to know. Absolutely. Yeah, and have a bit of compassion. 100%. Yeah. But also as well, a bit of bloody self-acceptance. It's like what we are talking about earlier. It's not all going to be infinity pools and mocktails. Contrary to what the Instagram influencers would have you believe, your life will contain yeah. challenge. Yeah. It will contain struggle. It will contain misery and suffering. Part of the journey is getting better at making your way through that while accepting that it's not always going to be easy. Mm. You know, you were talking about the Navy SEALs earlier. I love their motto, which is, you know, the only easy day was yesterday. Mm. You know, there's a, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah. And, you know, we really want to savour the periods in our life when things are going well. We, we really want to be grateful for the things that are good in our lives because there will be so many slings and arrows that come mm. our way that we want to appreciate times when they're good and appreciate the things that actually are yeah, good. Yeah, 100%. Like, you can't appreciate, you, you talked before about um, mocktails and infinity pools. Unless you've got anything, something to compare that to, then 
that becomes the normal and it's not something that's flash anymore. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, that's the thing, eh? Like, it's all about your benchmark. So, you know, from that uh, second book I wrote, as you know, like, had the distinct pleasure of getting to do some uh, work and observe the New Zealand SAS in action there and some of their training. Is this the, the mental fitness book? Yeah. yeah. One of the key things is about you know, mental toughness, that's what you're trying to develop. Yeah. Like what they use in the Defence Force, particularly in the Special Forces, is called stress exposure training. It's exactly like running, mate. The idea is you expose yourself to incremental increases in stress in order to build your capacity to cope with future demands and challenges. That's how you get physically fitter, that's how you get mentally fitter. You don't get physically fitter by sitting on the couch. Mm. You don't get more mentally tough and resilient by not going out and putting yourself under stress and pressure. The key thing is to do it to the right amount and then have recovery, right? So you don't damage yourself. And one of the things we talk about in mental toughness and psychology is that your ability to cope with current misery and suffering depends upon your previous benchmark. So if I go and do a half marathon, I've run a marathon before. So I know the half isn't as bad as the whole that I've run. Do you see how this works? Absolutely. And and that's what you do. And so for me, you know, my experience of imprisonment leaves me eternally grateful for how good my life is now. But this is also something we have to watch out for because we're so habit-forming as a species. It's really as easy to adapt to whatever your circumstances are and to start to take them for granted. And I've gone through periods like that after being imprisoned. But these days, I'm very conscious and deliberate. What do you mean about, by that exactly? Well, you what mean? I mean is, you know, if, if you have a life where things improve for you, like I talk about this in my book, it's called the hedonic treadmill is the technical name for it. But mm-hmm. basically what it refers to is this. Whatever our circumstances are, how much, however much they improve or however much they diminish, very quickly we get used to that and we return to whatever our prior level of sort of like happiness and well-being was. If you win a lottery within six months to a year, you'll be back to where you were before in terms of your standard level right. of gotcha. happiness yeah. and well-being. Yeah. If you become a paraplegic, the same is true. There's good research around this. You know, so one of the things that we need to do is we need to be really conscious and deliberate about cultivating the mindset and practicing the habits that actually continue to boost and improve. Yeah. You know, our level of happiness and our levels of well-being. And one of the things that's really important is really consciously and deliberately focusing on the things that are good in your life that you can be grateful mm. for. It's really interesting, like if you talk about neurotransmitters, you know, which are just the the electrochemicals that our brain uses to communicate with itself, there are two primary ones that relate to well-being. There's dopamine, which is about happiness with what you can get. Mm -hmm. It's about mood, motivation and movement, but happiness with what you can get is the key thing to think about. It's goal-focused, right? Whereas serotonin is about happiness with what you have. Yeah. Now, all of us have both of those if we have normally functioning brains. But you'll have some people who are more dominant towards one or the other. Serotonin-dominant people are those sort of more chill, relaxed people mm. who are just really good at appreciating things how they are, but perhaps lack a little drive and ambition, right? Whereas dopamine-dominant people are more those, what's next, what's next, what's the goal, push myself kind of people. (laughs) And, you know, they get heaps done, but the risk for them is that they rush through their life pursuing the next goal, never appreciate the journey, and then they're dead. And they're really intense for other people to be around because it's kind of like, great, it's the weekend, time to relax, what's my task list for the weekend, you know? Whereas one of the things we know from the research is if you want to boost your general levels of serotonin, your general levels of happiness with your life, and how 
how things are at the moment and appreciate the journey along the way, you know, the most evidence-based approach to do that is to cultivate a deliberate sense of gratitude. Mm. And that's where you, you focus on, hey, what are the things I'm grateful for? Now, check this out. Um, the research out of Harvard suggests if you practice a gratitude diary, otherwise known as the three good things, this is where you go once every 24 hours, you go, what are three small and different things I'm grateful for for the last 24 hours? Within 21 days, you will notice a significant increase in your general sense of happiness and well-being. But guess what? This is even more useful for dopamine-dominant people who are more likely to be focused on the next thing because it boosts that well-being to compensate for the drive towards achievement that they otherwise have. Yeah. They don't lose that but it builds that general well-being in the meantime, happiness for what you have. But check this out as well. Most people who try this stuff out quit way before the 21 days. And the reason they do is they go, well, what are three, three things I'm grateful for? Well, I'm grateful for that coffee I got before coming in. I'm grateful for your dog and its awesome name. I'm grateful for this conversation. And then they go, well, I don't feel massively uplifted when I do this, so I'll stop doing it. But what they fail to realise is it's like jogging, Dom. What you do today isn't about immediate returns. It's about investing yeah, in your future state, effect, mate. Exactly. Effect. It also forces you, to, forces you to think about those things that otherwise you may not. There's a, there's a saying I really like. It's that um, comparison is the theft of joy, and, I, and mm. I believe it. But that's only if you – and this is – I never really thought of this until I read your book, but you talk about comparing down, yeah. which is something you got from the Viktor Frankl book, Man's Search for Meaning, yeah. which is a fabulous book. And, and it is. It's like – and I suppose, like, comparing down is much like gratitude. It's just 100%. thinking about how worse form. things could be. Yeah, exactly. And it's not for everyone, eh, mm. the comparing down. If you're really already prone to anxiety and depression, if you start comparing down and going, oh, how much worse could things be, then you might start obsessing about that and worrying about it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But it's really good for me because yeah. then I, I'm always like, well, things can be worse. But when you're, okay, but how do you, how do you compare down when you've just been sentenced to life? Mate, there's so many more worse right. things than that. Let me give you an example. Right? I do workshops around this stuff, and I remember a woman, after we'd been talking about this, coming to me during the morning tea break and telling me she'd just been diagnosed as being terminally ill. But she really agreed with this because she's got six months to a year to live at this point, and she's really grateful that she knows, so she has the opportunity to prioritise spending time with people who matter to her. Yeah. If that can be the attitude you have when you are terminally ill, then, man, i got no complaints about mm. spending some time in prison. You know, I mean, there is always people who who are worse off than you. There is always a situation yeah. that could be worse than the current one you're in. And I just want to just close the loop on that three good things thing as well. And, you know, again, the idea is not that after 21 days you start to feel massively uplifted when you recount these things, but just you shift your brain's radar so you start to notice more of those things as they happen in the day, whereas previously you wouldn't have paid attention to them. And when you notice them, boom, that's when the serotonin mm. goes off in your brain. You know, you're retraining your brain to notice the good stuff because we've evolved as a species to pay a lot more attention to the stuff we are worried about, which makes us feel unpleasant emotions because that helped keep our ancestors alive. Mm. It was really useful from an evolutionary perspective, but it just reduces our levels of well-being and our ability to flourish in modern life. So we need to do things to counter it. Mm. Is, this all, is this all stuff that you learned through your various degrees and your study, yeah, it is. It yeah. is. So yeah. I, okay. So you gone. So you you sentence in like Rumataka Lower Hutt. You do time in Wellington. Then you get the bus up to Parimarima mm -hmm. Maximum Security. You do some time there. Then you go back to Wellington. Then you go into a, a thing called a unit. What's a yeah, unit? Yeah, Describe yeah. a unit. You. Yeah, well, I mean, like there is are like minimum security being structured. Yeah, it's medium to minimum. Right, and that's where you start your studying journey. 
Yeah, and I wanted to start it when I was in um, maximum security prison, but I couldn't get permission to do so. Right. And then I was transferred out. It was probably not the, in hindsight, it probably wasn't the right environment? Or? Well, it depends. I know people who have done really well who have started studying maximum security prison. Yeah. Wherever you're motivated to do it, it's the okay. right environment, Dom. It really is. And I mean, to be honest, I think a positive focus for your energy is crucial in prison, mm-hmm. and perhaps more so in maximum security prison than anywhere else. But anyway, so, you know, prisons are structured in different ways. The, the three basic uh, types of structure you have is you have units, you have pods, and you have blocks. Those would be the most common. Oh, and yeah. wings right. as well. There you go. And it just depends on the physical structure of the prison. Like uh, a block is a more historic sort of way of describing places like Parry, which are based off a supermax design out of the US, where you've got like a single rectangular building, like a block, like an office block, or like an apartment block. It is literally designed in that way. Like in Parry, in maximum security, there are multiple blocks, A block, B block, C block, and D block. I was in B block, so in the middle of A and C block, and you never, ever saw anything like grass or anything else like that. I remember when I used to go in the yard sometime, you know, if there was like a weed growing up through the concrete, I'd be like, oh, wow, look at that. <laughs> Nature. Nature, yeah. Because either side of you, you just see the other blocks. And then being in the yards, like a giant empty Olympic-sized swimming pool. Whereas pods is a more recent design for higher security. And they're more like, sort of like, you know, just an offshoot, like a, a sort of like an... an I don't want to say an octagon, but kind of like you have these long pathways that lead to these individual more sort of circular kind of like blocks that they now just refer to as pods more commonly. And then wings as well. You know, that can be um, different parts of higher security, but they're just often associated with lower security as well in uh, older prisons. And these days as well, units. And then you've got self-care as well. So units is where you go to when you are in lower security, and there's more freedom, there's less security, you know, you won't have bars on the fronts of the windows as a general rule, that sort of stuff. And then self-care is where you're like in your own little uh, sort of like flatting situation within the perimeter of the fence still, but you're responsible for your own cooking and other stuff like that, whereas a normal prison you aren't. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, because the, the, like the unit thing, um, you, you just in, in your book you describe like growing plants in your cell, and well, that, uh, but you still you still got your days. nose broken and you got in some uh, yeah, hella fights there. Yeah, but, but uh, the, those days are gone, mate. You know, like these days, the, I, I can't imagine there's anywhere where you're allowed to grow your own plants or that sort of stuff. Right. Because over the years, and also it sounded like weed was real easy to get in and get hold of when you yeah, were in there. I feel like and, it's and look, it always will be in the prison. Oh, do you think so? hundred percent. I'll tell you why that is. And one is, is that. Prisons are always comprised of different levels of security and people are very motivated to access drugs for their own use, but also, you know, if you're a drug dealer in order to, you know, make money. Yeah. Uh, and so if you've got people who are lower security who are going and working outside the wire on a regular basis, you know, who are performing the equivalent of community service and then coming back in, there's always going to be an opportunity for drugs to be accessed there. Yeah. People are always thinking of creative ways to get things in. And that's because they have nothing but time on their hands. But also, there will always be <laughs> yeah, a yeah, level yeah. of risk for corruption. Yeah. Because, you know, like being a prison officer, that is a hard, thankless job. It's not a well remunerated job. 
And also, you know, there will be some people who who just find themselves falling victim to corruption in that respect, mm. or who go in who could equally have been on the other side of the wire and just engage in corruption as just, mm. you know, just path the course. And I just want to let you know, that is the exception rather than the rule, yeah, right. but it definitely happens, yeah, and it's sure. a risk of happening, you know. Actually, I thought of you last night. There's an, there an ad campaign on TV at the moment for recruiting for um, a Department of Corrections yeah. for prison guards. And the guy on the TV ad, he's at a barbecue and he says, Oh, I, I do this job because I want to make a difference and I want to help these people and blah, blah, blah. And I thought about you and, and your experience. Uh, are most prison guards that way wired or that way worked for the job or are there some real bad in, in buggers? My, in my experience, if you go in there very idealistic, and very committed to helping people change, your spirit will be broken quite quickly. <laughs> and, you know, like, just systemically, it's not set up for that, yeah, Dom. Yeah. It's a bloody hard environment. You know, it's under-resourced. It's... it's. You think you just get cynical after all, uh, in a very short time. In, in general, yeah. but also as well, you know, it, it's an environment where... It's easier to control focusing on containment and security than it is on rehabilitation. Yeah, sure. And because it's like it has these real natural tensions, right? Like the protection of the public is its primary driver. So not having people escape, not having people, you know, be a risk to the public. But then it's got this other driver of rehabilitation. And the problem is, is the way you protect the public is by maximising security. But the way you maximise rehabilitation is by maximising opportunities for people to take responsibility for themselves and learn, which is the opposite of security. The vast majority of people are going to end up released at some point, and I want people where everything possible has been done to increase the likelihood that they will be contributing members of society and not reoffend. I don't want people in my neighbourhood who have come straight from serving years or decades in prison straight out the door where there's been no reintegration, where yeah. there's been no sort of bridging that gap because those people are a super high risk of reoffending. Mm. And you, you, I mean, you're an example of someone that can flourish, but I feel like most of that's come from within. Well, I think you're mistaken in that, right? Really? I mean, 100%. Look, I think this is the you got to fight about it. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I would like to cuddle about it, okay? I would like to hug it out. I don't, I don't want to fight Hug it, it out. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tie it in my shoelaces. That's something I learned from your book. You tie it in your shoelaces because if you have to, have to kick, kick someone, you don't want your shoe falling nah, off. Nah, and you, you learn all sorts of things like that. I actually oh, yeah. learned that from my oldest brother who was uh, a very accomplished street fighter right. back in the days. But anyway... Oh, so yeah, sorry, sorry for ruining your train of thought. So, so you think, because um, I, I said I thought your rehabilitation oh, yeah, uh, to yeah, the man yeah. you are today came from within and you disagree. Yeah, and no, I think this is the thing. We often attribute to the individual their success or failure, whereas actually, man, we all operate within an ecosystem, eh? It's like if you're in an environment where there are expectations of you to live up to and there are also options and opportunities and support available for you to progress, to do things differently, to safely explore, explore to, you know, to discover what you're capable mm. of, you're way more likely to do that. The biggest difference between me and so many people in prison is that I had uh, a supportive father yeah. who paid for my education, who believed in me, who was pro-social, so when I was released I didn't go immediately back into you know, a, a crime family. And also, as well, I had an opportunity for employment on release. Within a year of being released, 80% of New Zealand prisoners are still unemployed. Mm. Now, that is because some of them are difficult to employ, but that's a whole lot because also, as well, people don't give them second chances. New Zealand, I, I don't know if it's, if it's just New Zealand, but um, 
I feel like it is a new, it is very hard to get redemption in New Zealand, isn't it? Bro, I'll tell you what, we follow the US model, which yeah. is the least effective model possible. We are literally only second to the US in terms of the amount of people we imprison per capita, but also how bad our reoffending rates mm. are, our re-imprisonment rates, only behind the US, because we follow the model that doesn't work. We follow the model which is a political football, which is about winning votes based on emotional appeal rather than logic, rather than data, rather than facts, rather than having actual meaningful debate around yeah. this stuff. Whereas, you know, there are other models that work, but we just haven't bought in them. And I'll tell you this right now, I know that is something where we are different than many parts of the world because I've travelled internationally a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, New Zealand is one of the few countries that won't let people come into it if they have been imprisoned for more than 12 months or been arrested or charged with something where they could be imprisoned for more than 12 months. I remember when I first went to Europe, I was on parole at the time, and you needed to have permission to leave the country from the parole office as well before you could. And so they required evidence that you'd be allowed to visit the countries you were planning on going to. And I remember contacting the embassies from the Greek embassy, the Italian embassy, the French embassy, all to find out from them, hey, would I still be able to visit without a visa, even though I've had a serious you know, conviction as a teenager and a long period of imprisonment? And I tell you what, all of those countries have the attitude that if you have done the crime and done the time and your country is okay with you leaving, we don't have an issue with you Mm. unless you've already been kicked out of our country. The places that carry on this lifetime of punishment, this lifetime of never being able to get past what you've done, you know, that's the US, that's Australia, that's uh, Canada, and Brazil. Other places, I've visited Asia, I've visited all these other places, they don't even ask you about that stuff. Mm. Because if you've served your sentence, then as far as they're concerned, you're starting again. You've got a second chance. We have this very puritanical approach to this. And again, look, hey, you can make the business case. I understand why. And I've got to say, I've visited Australia multiple times and they're really good about letting me in, but I have to jump through hoops in order to do so. And that's fine. I accept mm. that. But most countries in the world have the attitude that once you've served your sentence, you are now given a clean slate and an opportunity to redeem yourself. That doesn't mean they let you go and work in high-risk roles with vulnerable people without it being a consideration, but they do maximise your opportunity to be a normal contributing civilian. Yeah, how good is that? Well, it's fantastic. Something I've learned from this podcast this year is everyone's carrying around a bag of shit, and it's just um, the the size of the bag of shit that Mm. varies from person to person. And um, everyone struggles with, like, I don't know, I suppose guilt, shame, regret, but your your baggage is probably heavier than most. So you do your time, you pay your time to the government, but then how do you how do you get over that stuff? Or are you, are you over that stuff? Mate, I tell you, it's not about getting over it. It's mm. about using those emotions as the fuel in your tank to go forward and make a contribution. You know, let's right. just talk about the difference between shame and guilt briefly. I feel guilt about what I've done in the past that's hurt other people. I don't feel shame about it. Because shame is something you feel when you think there's something fundamentally wrong with you. Shame is what you feel when you think, this happened because I'm a bad, irredeemable person. That's when you feel shame. Guilt, on the other hand, is when you go, I behaved in a way that I regret. And that guilt is my motivation to do different going forward. That guilt is the fuel in my tank. 
And the more consistently I live my life in a way which is in line with who I want to be and how I can make a contribution, the lesser the impact of that guilt. I still feel it. Like when I think about, you know, my victim's family, you know, I definitely still feel guilt. Do you, how often do you think about it now? Does it get less and less? Does it get easier for you? Look, it definitely gets less and less. Yeah. But also as well, it becomes something you can face more effectively. Like I really didn't want to give my victim's family any thought for many, many years because it was too hard. These days I'm, I'm equipped to be able to think about them and about the pain I have caused mm. them and the hole in their life as a result of my actions. Yeah. You know, I'm equipped to deal with that. And again, it's just a reminder to me that I need to be really focused going forward on bringing my A game, on trying to get better at being the person I want to be, but also at using my mistakes in the past in order to positively influence other people Mm. who want to find a way forward for themselves and who need a bit of motivation to know there is always a path back you can, no matter what you've done, you can always find a way forward to a better life, and there's always the option of being reaccepted by society. The comparing down thing that we were talking about before, you're probably a good example. Like if you're talking to a room of real estate agents with Rolexes, the the guilt or shame they're carrying is probably infidelity, or I don't know. Whatever it is, yeah. <laughs> it's not as heavy as your burden. Yeah, um, and my burdens nothing compared to what's yeah to a lot of carry. others. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I look back on my life and think I have been blessed in terms of how easy my life has been compared to. A lot of people I have come across. And, you know, again, it's like, you know, a lot of people who have had extremely traumatic experiences, unfortunately, you know, they don't have the reference point, they don't have the insight, they don't have the skills, they don't have the support in order to not repeat some of that stuff themselves. Um, But, you know, that's something we've got to look to do as a society is get better at providing people with you know some of those indicators of what the path forward could look like for them and some of the support and opportunity that helps them take that rather than you know repeating the cycle rather yeah. than just inhabiting that same space that maybe they've experienced yeah Man, God, I could talk to you for days. Likewise, bro. Yes. We'll have to go for a run sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you'll have to be injured yeah. when we do it. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm injured at the moment, so you're good. So is that something, you were in jail for a long time, but you've yeah. been out now for longer than what you were in. Yes. So you were saying at the beginning of this chat that you like running on the trails. When you're out there it, in nature, in the fresh air, running on the trails, do you think about that weed? 100%. You do? I, I do regularly. Like when I run on the trails, man, like I always touch the trees and the ferns and that on the side of the trail not all the time of course but I'll be running past stuff and I'll just touch it and I'll be like yes because I'll tell you this right now I remember how much I longed just to be in nature when I was in prison when I was in lower security at Rimataka prison I used to just look out the window and be able to see the hills and I used to just long just to be in there and now I get to be in there bro you know I get to experience that And I am so bloody grateful, and I am aware of it. You know, I am conscious of it, and I am appreciative of it. And I love, you know, being in this country where second chances are a real thing. You know, had I been arrested and convicted somewhere like China, I would have been executed, and my family would have been sent the invoice for the bullet used. You know, this is a great nation. It really is, and I'm super grateful for the the chance to have a second chance. Yeah, wow. I reckon that's probably a good place to sign it off. Wicked bro. That's awesome. And um, your mum, she would be proud. (laughs) Thank you. I really do appreciate that. Cheers. Dr. Paul Wood. Thanks. Kia ora.
Dr. Paul Wood on Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Thank you very much for listening all the way through. Uh, As I say most weeks at the end of the podcast, if your podcast platform allows, please rate this podcast or write a review for it. And if you like it, and if you like what you hear, please recommend it to a friend or two who you think may like it as well. Word of mouth is, in my opinion, the most effective form of marketing there is. Uh, also, you can get hold of me. Any feedback, uh, guest tips, sponsorship inquiries, or anything else, please get in touch. DomHarveyNZ at gmail.com or DomHarveyNZ on Instagram. All right, thanks very much. Hope to see you next week on Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.